being sent. But as soon as he's sent, he's told what to say, and, and it's maybe not what you would expect. It's not what you would, what you would think. It's a little bit of bad news, actually. So we want to look at that as we're, again, setting up our study of Isaiah chapter 1 through 12, the, the whole chunk of it that should take us through about Christmas time here at St. Paul. And uh, as I said last week, but for review, why are we looking at chapter 6, second? <laughs> huh? Well, because chapter 1 wasn't where it started. Chapter 1 is a thematic summary of the entire book's message. Chapter 6 is where the story starts for Isaiah, who up to this point in his life had not been a prophet. He had been something else, and I actually think he was a, a historian or a court recorder. We know from other places in the Bible, he wrote other books that we don't have, and they're not books of prophecy. But this is his book of prophecy that he was clearly sent to preach and then write. And here at chapter 6, he's going to talk about his being called to do this and what that vision was. Again, you heard it read a moment ago. And this chapter 6 now sits in the middle of chapters 1 through 12. So we're looking at chapters 1 through 12 because, first, to look at all 66 chapters of Isaiah, we'd be here for two and a half years. So I, I don't want to crush you, right? So we're looking at, like, a section of the book, but chapters 1 through 12 does hang together, not like a chapter, but like, you ever read a long fiction story? It's part 1, part 2, part 3, right? So, so chapters 1 through 12 is it's actually part 1 and 2. Uh, but they also then hook together as one story, flipping on either side of chapter 6, the call. And all of this taking place in the years of King Uzziah, King Jotham, and King Ahaz. Whereas after chapter 12, we're going to run pretty straight into the timeline that deals with King Hezekiah. And that'll take you all the way up to chapter 39, which ends what some people call book one. Uh, just ignore that. But you know, th there's a big shift at chapter 40. And then Isaiah tends to just kind of look forward more than deal with his times. Anyway, so we're going to be moving through chapters 1 through 12 in order, with the exception of this week. We're taking this middle block, which is also his call, and trying to establish what that looks like. And then also, this morning, we're going to say, what was he sent to say as soon as he was sent? And let that inform everything else we're going to look at next week when we look at chapter 2, the week after that, chapter 3 and 4, and so on. Okay? So, uh, chapter 6 of Isaiah starts on page 571 of your pew Bible. And I'd like you to get there if you can, or get to your own Bible and also, just be ready to flip to the book of Revelation in a little bit here, too. So have a way to mark your spot so you can come back to chapter 6. Um, but uh, chapter 6, verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died. We kind of set this all up last week. Uzziah was a good king. He was wise. He cut down the high places. God blessed him. He was militarily strong. He had all the nations around effectively serving him. Uh, the Passover was celebrated the way it was supposed to. And then he got a big head and decided he could be a priest, even though he wasn't from the sons of Aaron. And he got leprosy as a result of that. So he has to rule from kind of hiding for the last years of his life as his son Jotham is kind of regent at that point. And, and then he will die and Jotham will take the throne and rule for quite a while, about 15 years. It's not exactly that, but about 15 years. And Jotham does pretty well too, right? 
And then there's this guy Ahaz. We'll we'll get to him again again later. But so when chapter one tells us that all of this is being done in the years of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, I think chapter six now shows us it wasn't much of Uzziah's life. Whatever Isaiah was doing during Uzziah's life, you got the difference there. Whatever Isaiah the prophet was doing during King Uzziah's life, it shifts the year that King Uzziah dies. And suddenly, Isaiah is supposed to be a prophet. That is, one who hears what God says and says it again without changing anything. In that year, this all starts by him having this insane, and I cannot emphasize enough, insane vision. If you ever have a vision like this, you are nuts. Straight up. Now, maybe, maybe, maybe. God would actually give you this vision, but I, I think the New Testament says you're not going to see this again until Christ comes with the clouds and glory. But but just kind of take yourself out of Christianity for half a second. Pretend like you don't believe any of it for half a second. And like, imagine, so this guy says he saw God and he saw him on a throne with a bunch of angel psycho monsters flying around and clouds of glory and shouting songs. And yeah, well, that was great. It was just yesterday. You're going to look at that guy like he is nuts, right? This is kind of important, really. I mean, is Christianity sane? Or is it it kind of nuts? And and maybe I should flip it the other way. If you're a Christian and you believe this, guess what that makes everybody else? Those who don't believe it are actually kind of nuts. Because if this is true, which I believe it is, because Jesus, he is risen. Because this is true, it means anybody who doesn't believe it is certifiably uh, insane. They have rejected the one true God. They have set themselves against the only authority, the thing that made them. Huh? And then, and we know, as the New Testament reveals, they are going to be judged by their works on the last day. And, and no one's good enough to get out of that one. Yeah? So this is, this is the almighty glory of God revealed in the snapshot. This is not the only time this happens in the Bible. We're going to look at Revelation here in a moment, but that's not the only time either. There are other places where this same throne room of God, this same counselor moment of glory and shouting happens, and they all do have similar overtones. So I I really do think that you can take those different texts and you can eventually get the whole picture. We're not going to be able to do all of that today, but just so you're aware, um, this isn't unique to Isaiah. And when it happens, it's always kind of the same. There's not different visions of different throne rooms. There's one throne room of God, and they all have uh, different pieces. But kind of like where you're sitting right now, you might be able to see something in the sanctuary that someone else can't see. That's kind of how the prophecies come, come, up, come down to us. Okay, So they all see him on the throne, though. Uh, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Uh, there, there's a lot right there. Uh, maybe the best thing to do is to imagine for a moment that we don't have an altar, although there would have been an altar in this space too. The altar would have been like down over kind of where y'all are sitting over there. But then you have this throne up here. And imagine that we don't just have three steps. Imagine that we have like seven steps leading up to a huge platform. And imagine this throne looks something like Solomon's throne with ivory lions plated with gold with jewels for eyeballs on every step all the way up. And and the armrests of the throne are, are great big lions roaring. And again, carved out of ivory and covered in gold. Right, And upon this throne, there's sitting a man who is dressed not in a 
a fairly cheap chasuble from China. It was 30 bucks on eBay 10 years ago. Um, Everybody's dressed in, in true glorious attire that, that just stuns. Like you can't even afford to buy this yourself kind of thing, right? And then not only that, but the train of this robe, the flow of this robe from his, his seat, it covers all the ground. So I know some of you were with me yesterday at, at uh, former member and elder now at seminary, John Poppy's wedding up, up in uh, uh, Wisconsin area. And so at, as at most weddings, the bride was dressed in white and her dress was not short. It was long. It, was, it had a train to it. And everyone who was around her gave great attention to the train. If she turned, her maid of honor would jump down and move the train where it's supposed to go and make sure it doesn't get twisted. And the last thing anybody would do is step on it. So what do you do if the train of the bride's dress fills the entire place so you can't get out? Or maybe you can't get in, and that's the idea here. The train of his robe is filling the whole space. There's nowhere for you to come. It's too holy. It's too special. Isaiah is where he's not really supposed to be. And, And what happens next with these seraphim kind of shows that. They are not able to stand in God's presence either. They have to cover their feet with wings and then fly with other wings just to be there. All right, so let's look at that. Verse two, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And then verse 3, he's going to tell us that they sing this song, Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, We'll come back to that. Not a lot here about the seraphim, just their wings. That's all it really says, and what their wings do. Again, cover the feet out of piety, cover the eyes so they can't look on the Holy One, and then fly in his presence so they can sing. The one thing that doesn't come across in English is the word seraph is built of the word fire. In Hebrew. So seraphim means like on fire guy, right? Burning one. Uh, I saw the burning ones. It's, it's not so hallmarky, right? It's, it's not so pretty angels in the sky. Uh, the hosts of heaven are ministers in flames of fire. Now, here's the challenge. In every one of these visions with the throne room, you do have these four beings that are there singing, but they're not always called the same thing. And there are very faithful Bible-believing Lutheran pastors out there who think they're not the same thing, that there's more than four, that there's a whole different variety of angels here. And so they think they all, we only know a little bit about each. I take a different route. I think that there are four of them and that in Ezekiel's vision and in Isaiah's vision and John's vision, they're all the same. And so we can get a pretty good picture of what they look like. All right. So just be aware that what I'm going to say next, though, not everyone agrees with me, but I'm just going to point you to the text of Scripture for for some more information about these, these singing angels. So put your finger again in Isaiah here and and flip to Revelation uh, we heard chapter one read, but the, the seraphim, cherubim, living creatures are going to show up in chapter four. That's on page 1030 in your pew Bible. Uh, uh, John is taken through a door up into heaven. And then we're going to start at verse two. When he goes through the door into heaven, verse two, it says, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven, right? Same thing here. Same thing Isaiah seen so far. There's a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. 
And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. as to say, his body was shining like jewels. Yeah, And you got this from Jesus in chapter 1, where his face shone like the sun and his feet were like burnished bronze. And if I'm not mistaken, you get the same kind of thing about the one on the throne in the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, uh, But we'll leave that there for today. But he's the guy on the throne, he's got his own light. Yeah, And the light is in him in a way that's beautiful, like a jewel would be. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Okay, so don't think green, right? Don't think emerald green. Think emerald expensive jewel. So around the throne is a rainbow that looks like it's made of diamonds and rubies and emeralds and all sorts of glittering beautiful. This also is what Ezekiel sees entirely around the throne, only he adds, it's on fire. Uh, There's a rainbow on fire. Now, you know a rainbow is made of water, right? Water and light. How is it on fire? I don't know, but it's kind of cool. Now, also is cool, this is cool, that the rainbow exists in the Bible because after the flood, when God destroyed the world by water, he set the rainbow in the sky as a promise that he would never destroy all the creation by water again. And now we hear that as he sits on his throne in highest heaven, he has a rainbow all around him. So wherever he looks, he has to look through his promise. That's pretty cool. There's a rainbow all around the throne. And verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones. This is unique to John. Seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Long story short, 12 patriarchs, 12 apostles. This symbolizes not just those actual men, but the church, that's us, Old Testament, New Testament Christians, the holy number of God's people in time and space, all there. We're with God, right? When Paul says, you are seated at the right hand of the Father with Jesus, he means it. You're actually there right now by faith, by faith alone. And here again is a picture of that. Verse five, from the throne came, this is kind of like Isaiah's threshold shaking. We haven't seen that yet, but the the whole building shakes. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. Remember the seven lampstands from Revelation 1 we heard read a little bit ago. These also are an image of the church. The lampstand is a place where oil goes so you can have light. So the church is a place where the word of God goes so his light can shine upon the world, right? So a lampstand is an image of the church. There's seven of them. That's that's the number of holiness. God's holy church is there. Um, And he also then mentions these seven lampstands are the seven spirits of God, it says there. I'd quibble with that translation and tell you it's sevenfold singular spirit, not seven different spirits. And the sevenfold singular spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. So what is the power that keeps the church alive and alight in the world? Well, as God has promised, from heaven, Jesus ascends to send his Holy Spirit, the comforter, the counselor, who by his word will gather the people from the nations. So a picture here again of God being with his church in this throne room now. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So the whole place now is is covered with water, but the water doesn't move at all. And in the, in the ancient world, uh, the sea, uh, the, the waves, the chaos of Poseidon's realm or Neptune or whoever you want to think of was kind of the same place as, as where the dead are. It was a place of, of destruction and danger. 
Uh, the sea is, is a place that's a threat because you never know what it's going to do. It can seem like calm waters and then there's a storm and now you're dead. And e even in our modern age, that's still kind of true. If you're out in a fishing boat and a nor northeaster comes in, uh, you're going to have some trouble. So uh, the thing here, though, is now the sea is like, it's not moving. It's still. Right? So the, the realm of Leviathan, the abode of the abyss, it's been, it's been put to rest before this throne of God now, right? Now, here we go. Uh, rest of verse six, new paragraph. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four, count them, four, there's four living creatures. Well, that's a weird word there, living creatures. And, and it is in Greek, it's just that, living things, livings. It's just the word life with like an ending that means it's a thing now. Huh? There are four living things. Uh, and he's going to talk about them full of eyes in front and behind. Ooh, lots of eyes, lots of eyeballs. Uh, the first, like a lion, the second, like an ox, the third, with the face of a man, the fourth, like an eagle in flight. All right, now we're getting somewhere. That's just like they look in the book of Ezekiel, except for one problem. In Ezekiel, all four of them have all four faces. In John, all four of them, each one has one face. And of course, in Isaiah, did he mention any of that? No, he didn't. So, so again, some say, well, therefore, there are seraphim, there are cherubim, and there are living creatures, and they're all different. I think that's just, it's, it's ludicrous, actually, is what I think. I think what we have is four amazing, not archangels, he doesn't call them archangels like Michael and Gabriel, but high spectrum level, incredible angelic beasts. And their task is, I mean, look, uh, let's just kind of keep going here. The four living creatures, each of them with how many wings? Six wings, sound familiar, right? Are full of eyes all around and within and day and night, they never cease to say, here's the song, same song as Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And now we haven't gotten here yet in Isaiah, but in Isaiah, when they sing this song, the whole building shakes and smoky cloud goes everywhere. Now, when they sing this song, when they give glory and honor and thanks to him who's seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, verse 10, the 24 elders, that's us, that's the church, fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So as these angels are singing to God, the church sings with them in the presence of the one who sits upon the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And you will have those very words in your mouth later this morning, right before we are in the presence of God to receive the Lord's Supper as it will come down and touch your lips like that coal touches Isaiah's lips. We're, we're not there yet, but You've heard it read, okay? So lots of pieces to put together here. Uh, let's let's kind of rewind a little bit and just get to these four cherubim, seraphim, living creature, angel, beast guys with eyeballs and fire and wings and all this stuff going on, yeah? What are they? Why are they there? And I think, I think it's actually really clear. Uh, and it has to do with two, two things. First off, there's four of them. Uh, numbers in the Old Testament, over time, gain meaning that's more than just how many 
That doesn't mean that there aren't actually four of them. I'm not saying the number is just a symbol. I'm saying the number is also a symbol. And then when you kind of look at the way these numbers are used in the Old Testament, they mean very specific things. So I already said this morning that seven is the number of holiness, the number of being set apart, right? Or it's pretty easy to pick up on holy, holy, holy. There's a three there, right? And if you know about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you know there's three persons in one God. So God is thrice holy. Even in his essence, he's got to be three times holy. Right? So three is the number of God. Well, four is the number of, of creation or the number of the earth. And this is tied to that there's four directions, right? North, south, east, west. Sometimes it's called the four winds of heaven. It talks about it that way. You got four horsemen of of the book of Revelation, sometimes called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And and they carry all the plagues that ever get put upon the earth with them out into the world. So four is the number of the world. That's that's the first thing here. So these, these four living creatures are representing the earth. And then when you look at what their faces are, whether they each have each face or whether each of them are separate, it doesn't matter to me. When you look at their faces, they represent key kinds of things in Hebrew thought. Now, man is pretty easy. He's, he's the head of creation. But then there beside man, you have the lion, the ox, and the eagle. Now, we don't have a lot of oxen around. And actually, there's not that many lions around, although most people are familiar with lions a little bit. Um, so, you know, the eagle, though, I mean, why is the eagle the symbol of the United States of America? Right? Why, why wasn't it the turkey? Why was Benjamin Franklin wrong? Right? Everyone kind of knows that, I hope. Have you seen the turkeys out in our yard? Aren't you glad that's not what represents us? Yeah. Uh, so why, why is the eagle so, so big and powerful and amazing? Well, it's sort of the king of the air. It's the apex predator. Of all the birds, it is the bird you don't mess with. Huh? So he's, he's the king of the birds. That's the idea here. And the lion, you've heard this, the king of the forest. Yeah. Of all the wild animals that roam upon the ground and go out at night hunting for stuff, the one that's the meanest and biggest and strongest would be the lion. And so he's the king of the wild animals. And then the ox, again, I mentioned we don't really think about oxen much, but I tell you, you go back 200 years, you're going to wish you had an ox. Oh, man, you're not going to do a lot of farming without your ox. Uh, the ox is of all of the domesticated animals, you know, puppies, kittens, fish, not so much, right? Goats sheep, that kind of thing, it is the king. And it is the greatest and strongest, right? So you have the king of the wild, the king of the domestic, the king of the air, and the one who reigns over them all as steward of the earth, a sum total, a representation of all creatures that exist on this planet. And these four angels then are really there, angels as kind of symbolic representatives of us also. And then again, now they're going to sing this song, holy, 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 and the whole church will sing that song with them. So go back to Isaiah. We're kind of done with Revelation now, but I wanted you to see how the the overlap goes, right? And that when you have this vision of the throne room, it does show up other places in the Bible. And I would encourage you to always see them as the same place. The same thing is happening there. Uh, And if you move through the Bible, I mean, this is kind of a fun one here. In the book of Ezekiel, There's also the sea. Remember how we said the sea was all still in Revelation a moment ago? In Ezekiel, there's a sea, but we, we, the angels and us, we're under the sea, and the sea is chaotic. So there is a change when you get to the other side of the resurrection of Jesus. Now we're on top of the sea, and the sea is peace. 
So, so you do see a growth through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But again, it's the same throne room. It's the same God. And it's the same song. So back in chapter 6, right? The song, verse 3. One called to another and said, Holy, 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 Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts, or Jesus Christ of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, how does this song go? We're going to sing it in a few moments, right? Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, the Lord. Actually, that's the divine service for. But you recognize that, right? Um, and we're going to sing it that way as a whole. Uh, the commentary that I was reading about this, they suggested that it was just like one angel singing holy, holy, and another angel singing holy. And then you would kind of do that back and forth, and it was building like this big harmony on top of each other, just holy. Holy, holy, holy. I thought, wow, that's pretty cool to think about that way. It'd be a nice thing to have a choir director write or something like that. But, but in any case, the song isn't really about the music. The song is about what's said. And the word holy is there three times. We mentioned that already. Thrice fold holy. Three times holy, Father, Son, and Spirit. And then holy means, I'm going to test you. If you were at first service and you answer, don't answer now. What's holy mean? Say it loud. You got it right. Set apart, very good, right? And so who is ultimately set apart? It's God. God is not creation. That's the point of the word holy. God is not creation. He's completely set apart from creation. So then how are you holy? Well, because in this fallen creation, God has set you apart to be saved from the fire which is coming and to be part of the next creation. And more than this, it's even better He's entered into you as your holy God through the body and blood of Jesus Christ, eaten as bread and wine, to make you literally set apart as a member of his body. The cows and the trees, they get to have their version of paradise, but but they don't get that. And you do. Uh, You are truly set apart. You are holy. And so also then you sing with all creation. Again, holy, 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 because God's the one who does it. And then the name Yahweh or Jesus, I like using Jesus for Lord when it's in all caps because the word in the Hebrew Yahweh is the Old Testament name of God. It's not a title. The Lord is a title, but in the Hebrew Yahweh, it's his name. Sometimes people use the word Jehovah there. You could put the word Joshua there if it makes you feel more Hebraic, but there's one name given under which men must be saved. The New Testament revelation, Jesus is Lord. So that's, that's who we're talking about here is Jesus on the throne. And then Lord of hosts. This is important, right? So it's, it's not Jesus so meek, Jesus so mild with a little lamb on his shoulders and a little child running behind him, long hair, hippie, and having a good time. This is, this is the God of armies. This is the warrior king. Uh, this is the guy who's bringing the sword for judgment. And we want to see that, that that's who our God is. He's, he's not light and merry. He's, he's good and merciful, But he's not light and merry. He doesn't suffer fools. Nor will he allow himself to be mocked. If you think you're going to put one over on him, ain't going to happen. He's going to bring the fire. So that's what that Lord of hosts idea is here. Whole earth is full of his glory. Has to do with uh, the idea that all creation knows he's real. The only thing in all creation that doesn't know he's real is stupid humans. And I kind of mean all of us by nature. I don't mean just specifically the atheists, but they've decided to like double down on their foolishness. Uh, but stupid humans, we're the only ones who don't know. The, the cows know, the dogs know, the trees know, the whales know, the demons know there's a God. 
Stupid humans. No, I don't, I'm not so sure. You ever come across a house in the woods and not be sure someone built it? It's, it's that simple, right? So here we are in the universe, and you're like, I don't know. Maybe it's ancient aliens. Okay. You know, okay. So we'll leave that aside. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the threshold shake. So the music makes the whole building shake. And the voice from him who calls out uh, is with it. That loud voice, everything's moving around, and it's all filled with smoke, right? Which is, as you saw at the transfiguration, smoke is the presence of God. Think of the cloud and fire that led Israel across the Red Sea. Smoke is the presence of God. And what's he do? He says, I'm in trouble. Woe is me. Oi. In Hebrew, it's oi. You ever hear someone? Oi. Woe. Same word. Okay. Woe is me. Oi. I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, Jesus Christ, God of armies, Lord of hosts there. Right. So uh, what's he do? I want to I move past this, not spend too much time on it. But he recognizes that on his own, he cannot stand before the holy God. He just says, I can't, I can't, I don't deserve to be here. Confession of sin is the way we should hear this. And the next thing that happens is an immediate absolution. Verse six, one of these angels, the seraphim, flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Huh? So I, 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 I can't help myself from sharing this part with you. Like, I'm already afraid because the, the building's shaking and there's nowhere to stand and there's crazy psycho angel beasts up in the air and I'm saying, woe is me. And now one of them flies at me with a burning coal in his hands. He's got to shove it in my face. Doesn't sound like it's getting better. <laughs> and yet, and yet, it is. No, this is the thing about God's word. A lot of times the thing that looks the most bitter once you drink it full, it becomes very sweet. Yeah. The thing that's the hardest to believe once you submit yourself to it being what God has said becomes the most valuable thing you've ever found. And so here, what appears to be a dangerous thing is not dangerous at all, but makes him clean. And I really want you to hear and see the connection point that now you're here today in the exact same place with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. You're going to sing the song, holy, holy, holy. And then a messenger, an angel, I'm not, I've got wings, but I'm a messenger of God. I'm going to come to you with something in my hand. And it's not on fire and it's not made of burning coal. It's bread that is the body of Jesus. And I'm going to give it to you. And I want you to believe this has touched your lips and your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for by the cross of his death and resurrection on your behalf. Yeah. So so catch that, hold that, bring that back in a few moments when we're singing the song, hold that in your mind. But now I said, there were three things we got to do. Right? Look at the vision. Look at the revelation connection to the vision. Now we're going to look at what he actually gets sent to say. Right? So verse 8. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Right? So now that he's been forgiven, he hears God talking. God says we need someone to go talk for us to somebody else. Uh, by the way, this happens quite a bit in the throne room of God. And it's, it's even the level where the demon's going to be part of it. Maybe you remember in the book of Job, 
right? The devil's like accusing Job in, the, in, in front of God's counsel. Or there's a place where I think it's, I think it's, uh, it's Ahab, uh, where God is like, uh, is it Ahab? Yes, it's Ahab. God is like, so who will go and, and get Ahab to go to war so he can die? Yeah. And a demon's like, I'll do it. I'll be a lion spirit. And God's like, okay, you go. So, so it's, it's interesting how this question answer thing that God does, it's, it's not just here with Isaiah. It's, it's, it's there a number of times in the Bible. But here he just kind of is talking, you know, who of all my people will go? Should I send one of the archangels? And, and Isaiah, he's so excited at this point. He says, I'll go. I'll do it. And he had just said, I got no lips. All the people are unclean. No, I'll do it. It's kind of cool. See, it's one of those, those great moments where you see that, that God is going to shove you where you're supposed to be. The Spirit of God isn't going to let you not be where you're supposed to be. He's going to move you at the right time. So, but now he finds out, like, maybe you should have, like, looked at the contract before you, you got sent. Um, he says, uh, go and say to the people. Here, here's your message, Isaiah. Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts in turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. A little good news right at that last bit. We'll come back to that. But oh my, that's not, that's not a happy commission right there, right? Um, uh, go talk to people about how they're not going to want you to talk to them and about how they're not going to believe what you say and about how they won't believe it until they walk themselves into absolute desolation and judgment in this life in which armies and warriors from afar come and destroy their cities and sweep them away. Go say that. Yikes, right? How do I fit that into a law gospel sermon? I'm not really sure. It sounds pretty just, just condemning to me, and, and in fact it is. So I will say to you that whenever we get to texts like this, and when we have the condemnation of the hypocrites of old being brought before our eyes, the first thing we should do is say, Jesus, please forgive us. Because that's what all these texts are here to have us do. And even though he'll, he'll talk about this in other chapters here that we're going to look at in the coming weeks, even though there's going to be a desolation brought upon the land, a remnant of faithful believers will always remain. And those who remain will always be saying the same thing. God have mercy. Jesus have mercy on us. And he will always be doing so. And yet, here we see that for the sake of his greater purpose, for the sake of history, for the sake of him bringing Jesus when he brought Jesus to be Jesus, he had to rebuke the ungodly nation that was there at that time. 
and destroy it entirely like one takes a tree and cuts down the tree so it falls over and all that's left is the stump of the ground. That's what he's going to do to Israel and then to Judah. Remember, northern and southern kingdoms. And here, this is Isaiah's message. Now, remember, Isaiah is also going to have some people believe this eventually. So that the the cutting off of the trunk of Judah will get delayed for a couple generations. So that's also something for us to always see. It's never so bad that God can't slow it down. It's never so out of control that repentance and prayer will not bring about mercy and a, can I call it a morning, like like good morning, like sunrise, a new day, a new time. It's never so bad that prayers for God's mercy will go unanswered. And so when we have such texts as this, especially in times like the ones we live in right now, to me, it's inspiring and encouraging. I get to say, huh, I kind of know what it's like to live underneath godless kings. And yet, I also know what it's like to have the Holy One high and lifted up on my side. And I'm going to believe that the words that he gave of old, he gave to me now to use to call on him. And I'll believe he'll answer in exactly the same way. So that he'll either bring about repentance in America, where Christian churches will be filled with Christian people who believe their Bible and that Jesus is God again. And that will bring about a new enlightenment, an age of peace and prosperity and joy and good neighborliness and civility. Or we won't repent. He's going to burn us down to the ground, but a remnant will live through it. And we might as well be part of that here in St. Paul. I'm happy with either of those because neither of those, God's will is being done. And I'm not going to let it move me to think that my neighbor is going to go ahead and throw himself into the fire. Will I warn him? Yes. Will I pray for him? Yes. Will I join him? No. No. And I'll know I don't have to. All right. So uh, we got about seven minutes here. I'm going to take you through verse by verse what I just kind of talked about. Right, so a little bit of review from the text here to close us out this morning, um, starting with verse nine, right? The, the little paragraph outbreak there. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. By the way, Jesus will quote this. He's asked one place, hey, Jesus, why do you tell stories? Why, why are you talking parables? Right, just means stories. Why do you tell stories? And he quotes this. So nobody will understand me. That's his answer. Yeah. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus, I thought you wanted everyone to believe and come to a knowledge of the truth. Well, I do. Then why don't you want anyone to understand you? Because if they understood me, I'd heal them. What? That seems like contradictory. Yep. But I'm God and my ways are not your ways. So you're okay. I got you. And that's really what we do need to get out of this, right? He says, I got you. So stop worrying about them. And if hearing they do not perceive, if seeing they cannot grasp it and god is hardening them to their destruction well that's that's what he does be 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 glad that you're not there yeah um mm, 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 i lost something but we'll go on without it Uh, keep on hearing but do not understand seeing but do not perceive make the heart of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their eyes ears heavy blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their hearts turn and be healed At a certain point, God stops giving grace and he begins to harden. And once that happens, even the good news of grace will harden that person more. This is why no matter how much you want person A, whoever they are, to be saved, 
You can't make it happen. You can't speak the word of God so perfectly. You can't find a way to law gospel it just right. You can't end around on their hardened heart, especially if God has decided to harden them unto perdition. Can you pray for them? Yes, by all means. Can you ask God to break their heart and make them into believers? Yes, by all means. But you can't do it, right? Once they're in this trap, they're in this trap and they've put themselves there, right? And so again, the place to be is one where you're not, don't break your own heart trying to convert those who won't convert. Instead, just learn to tell the truth, right? Stop trying to say the gospel just right and learn to believe what you believe and say whatever you believe with conviction. That'll go far further. And then again, so if someone comes into church and says, I don't like what you guys believe. It says this in the Bible, but I don't believe it. I'm going to a different church. Say, bye-bye. Bye-bye. You can go. We don't hate you. We're not mad at you. But, but you don't need to be here. It's okay. Huh? If you don't want to believe this, it's not for you. That's, that's the key here, right? Oh, I did remember that other thing. So, and this is maybe kind of a, a side shot at, at preachers who I don't think preach well. Um, but, you know, I may not always be here. I may die. I get hit by a truck and need another pastor. And, and maybe you move on somewhere and you got to go to another church at some point. So, so if you ever hear a guy who likes to open every sermon with his own story that he gets off the Internet and kind of makes a joke and seems all catchy and fun. And you hear him say, you know, you ask him, why do you do that, Pastor? Why don't you preach the Bible a little more? Stop telling silly stories. He says, well, Jesus talked in stories and say, well, that means we don't understand you, Pastor. Is that what you really want? Because yeah. I've heard guys say that. Jesus talked in parables. That's why i got to tell stories. Shut up. Read the Bible. You don't know what you're talking about. So, again, I'm sucker punch. But really, it's, it's sad that we're so biblically unliterate, the guys will say they're talking in jokes from the internet because Jesus did. They're, they're so ignorant. We need to be wiser than this, right? And especially then here, uh, he doesn't send the pastor of the Christian church to confuse you. He sends the pastor to be able to teach you what the Bible says so that you will be built up and encouraged and strengthened as a body, right? Isaiah's call is not my call. Although, again, his word is a word we can hear and uh, be built by. Verse 11, how long, O Lord, right? So he, he hears that he's going to be preaching to people until they, and they won't believe. He says, how long does that have to go on? How long do I have to tell them the truth and they're not going to listen to me? And he says, until cities lie waste, until the armies come and destroy everything. That's how long. This will happen with the armies of Assyria. Uh, and we'll get to that as we talk about Ahaz in, in the coming weeks. Um, but you know, Judah will be utterly demolished with the exception of Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem itself. Utterly demolished. Cities destroyed, uh, families torn up and broken up, uh, women and children made slaves, and all sorts of horrible things, right? Until um, uh, houses are without people, the land is desolate and a waste. The Lord removes the people far away, right? That's the being taken away into captivity. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And, and just in case that's not bad enough, like not even 10% are going to be remaining. Though a tenth remain, it will be burned again, right? He is planning to tear down Judah to the root, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. Now, there's a setup there. We're in chapter six. We're not going to get to chapter seven next week, but I know, I know you know that the shoot will go up from the stump of Jesse. I know you know that, right? So here's the setup. Jerusalem and Judah is going to be cut down like a big tree, but like the terebinth, which in Israel is a type of oak, that as long as the root is good, it will always grow back. 
so also the Holy Church of God, because it's built on Jesus Christ, will always send forth new life. And that goes all the way up to the cross again, where he was torn down to the root, put into the ground as a seed. Yeah. And springs forth as the new flower, the new life of the resurrected man uh, to brew over us for all eternity. All right. That holy seed then clearly is our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we're at time here for this morning, so I, I'm not going to try to fit a fancy conclusion onto this thing here, but we did do those three things. I, I hope that this, again, that these weeks in Isaiah are going to strengthen you for being unafraid of the Old Testament, for being able to dig into it and, and at least grab onto what seems obvious, right? Jesus is right there on top. He's right there on top. He's on your lips, forgiving your sin. He's in the chute coming up from the stump. You can always find that. And the more you do that, the more you eat that, uh, the greater your conviction is going to be uh, to sing with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, the glory of his name. Yeah. In Jesus' name, amen.